1: outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry
0: that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan Hello, and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I'm your host, Yonatan Krad. In this podcast, we pick a new book on a topic related to medicine, and we interview the author of that book. This time, as the inaugural podcast, I'm happy to say that we have Elizabeth Pisani on the show, and we'll be talking with her about her book, The Wisdom of Horse, Bureaucrats, Brothels, and the Business of AIDS. When in medical school, I found myself drawn to the study of infectious diseases in large part because of the mixture of science and anthropology. Infectious diseases are always about the way we interact with the world around us, what we do with whom and when and where and how often. Take the recent examples of the global spread of pandemic influenza, a respiratory virus spread through air droplets, and the epidemic of cholera in Haiti which is spread because of a lack of access to clean water, and how in each case, the spread of the infection says something about the world and the ways in which the world's population is connected. Now, the most important infection of our time is HIV, and its predominant modes of transmission are particularly complicated and culturally loaded human behaviors, sex and IV drug use. In her engaging, informative, and fun book, The Wisdom of Horrors, Bureaucrats, Brothels, and the Business of AIDS, Elizabeth Pisani draws on her experience doing field work as an epidemiologist in Indonesia and on staff at UNAIDS, the Joint United Nations Program on HIV-AIDS, during the time when the world was coming to grips with the fact of an exploding global epidemic of HIV. If you want to design effective interventions, as these groups do, you have to understand exactly who and what those interventions should target. But how easy is it to figure out who has sex with whom and when and where and how often, or who injects drugs and shares needles? Doing so is loaded with pitfalls, and Elizabeth lays them out for us, exploring how preconceptions, ignorance, and technical problems can cloud our ability to see what's really happening, to interpret what we see, and most importantly, to figure out effective ways to intervene. She reminds us that what's true for Jersey may be completely false in Jakarta. And on top of that, how do you convince the people who hold the purse strings to pay for everything? These are the fascinating problems, and we thank Elizabeth for sharing her compelling insights. Hi, Elizabeth. Uh, Today, we are talking with Elizabeth Pisani about her book, The Wisdom of Whores*. I've read it, enjoyed it thoroughly, and recommend it very highly. Um, I especially like the way um, the working of epidemiology is laid bare, um, and the critical eye the book brings to all aspects of the field from how data is acquired through how it is presented and at times even manipulated. Um, and I also really like the way the book um discusses the investigations and explanations of HIV and AIDS, um, and how the programs and interventions work and don't work. It's a rollicking, smart, compelling book, and an excellent read. Um, so, Elizabeth, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, my history
2: is uh, mixed and hard to understand. Given my accent,
3: you'll probably be slightly surprised to know that I occasionally confess to having been born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Really? Uh, yes. Um, and then uh, I had the great good fortune to uh, have very peripatetic parents. They uh, they met when my father was hitchhiking around the world and my mother was hitchhiking around Europe. Um, so all of you out there, beware of an immigration queue, it could stick with you longer than you think. Um, so I sort of inherited the travel bug, but also had the good fortune to, to grow up in, in many different countries in Europe. Um, and then uh, spent. I managed to um, do my first degree uh, as a result of a... Bet made in a drunken moment in an underground bar in New York City when I was far too young to be drinking in bars in New York City. Um, And the bet was that I wouldn't go and study classical Chinese at Oxford.
0: Oh, my goodness.
3: Um, And sadly, I lost the bet, and therefore I did have to go and study classical cheese Uh at Oxford. Um, And from there, I started traveling um, in Asia. And I had really quite a jolly time Um, and became very interested in the way different societies are organized and the way different political structures work um, and the way different cultures uh, and politics interact. And I became a foreign correspondent um, and was posted in all sorts of fun places. Um, I started off in Hong Kong and then I was in uh, India, Indonesia, I did a lot of work in China and in that process I got really interested in the interaction between population and politics because that's three of the four most populous countries in the world right there mm-hmm. and they all had really different approaches to, to population um and so after many years of uh, late nights and uh, long poker games and reporting on revolutions and stock market collapses and cholera epidemics and the like, mm-hmm. um, I thought, well, maybe go back and study that stuff a bit. Um, and there I started my transition from Chinese-speaking foreign correspondent um, to epidemiologist, which I know isn't an obvious transition, um, but uh, but it was a fun one. And, and to be honest, it's not that different. I mean, a lot of people don't even know what epidemiology is. You know, they, they look at me and they're like, uh... Is that like something a bit gross to do with skin? Like, no, no, it's a study of disease. And they're like, well, so how did you go from, you know, reporting on stock markets and and revolutions in Tiananmen Square to to being a, quote, expert in diseases?
2: Yes.
3: And I guess my thinking is that actually, the skill base is almost identical. Uh You're basically trying to find the right people ask them the right questions, organize the information, analyze it sensibly, and then communicate it to someone who can do something about it. Um, so I think actually epidemiology and good outbreak epidemiology uh, resembles good investigative reporting quite a lot.
2: So the transition isn't really as weird as people expect.
0: Yes, I'm, I, I, in your introduction, um, Uh, you talk about the divide um, among epidemiologists between those who think their job is just to do science and those who think they are supposed to impact policy. And that also um, has parallels with journalism. Uh, And so I was wondering also how your experiences as a journalist impacted your conception of your role as an epidemiologist. And that's a very interesting question
3: i I would say that it's not so much I mean obviously uh, I don't think it's so much my experience um, of the one that impacted the other, but possibly the the shared roots um, that both of them have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm interested in I became a journalist for the same reason that I became an epidemiologist essentially, uh, which is that I'm interested in in politics, uh, policy uh, and human existence. Uh, Um, and I'm Vaguely, I mean not to be too grandiose about it um, But I'm sort of interested in in being able to contribute to to those constellations being more functional for more people than than Perhaps they are at the moment. So I would say I guess that makes me on the very engaged Mm -hmm. side of the of of the debate on both journalism um, and and epidemiology Uh, You know frankly public health is you know, the money's shit, uh, it's long hours, uh, it's not at all glamorous. It's not something that people sitting next to you at a dinner party say, wow, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, you're in public health. Isn't that sexy? You know, it's not sexy. It's not well paid. It's not whatever. So you better do it because you give a damn. Right. Um, and if you give a damn, um, then I think it is your duty, not just to generate evidence, but to, uh, do everything you can to try and make sure that that evidence is, is taken into account in, in the decision making process mm-hmm. so yes I agree that there's a fine line between um, between Communicating research results and engaging people with research results, and actually, you know, pimping, pimping your data. Um, but I think that, you know, and and I guess even further down that line, we would use the word lobbying.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that if you're going to be in this field, just to say
3: look, you know, I, I, I did my study and I published in the New England Journal and and, and now I've done my job, um, is, is to misunderstand what, what job it is you've chosen to do.
0: And so that actually provides a nice lead into to a question about your book. Um, so how did you come to write The Wisdom of Horrors?
3: Well, I've been working um, in HIV... Um, epidemiology, mostly focusing on national surveillance systems, trying to improve our data systems, trying to improve our understanding um, of, of both the distribution of, of the HIV virus but, and principally the distribution concentration of, of behaviors that spread it um, at a national level for many years. And that that leads you into, you do that because you want the, the, that information, those data um, to help you to plan better Responses, principally my interest is in prevention um, and using this information to, to try and, and improve our prevention programs, uh, but also to figure out whether what you're doing is, is having any impact. Um, and I've been doing that for a good long time, good, over 10 years. Um, and essentially, I was saying the same thing over and over again and many others were too. It's not like I was saying anything that was radically different Mm -hmm. um, from many of my colleagues but what we were seeing as the as HIV became increasingly politicized and it became increasingly well-funded, uh, was that money was being spent worse and worse. Um, and we were really, we were collecting better and better data, so you could say, tick, job done, you know, ticked that box, I've, mm-hmm. I've really done the job of, of helping to improve surveillance systems and whatever, you know, I've made a contribution in that field. But what wasn't changing nearly as much was what we were doing with that better information so great to have better information but not quite so great to go on ignoring it um, and you know I've been banging the, the drum of what we should be doing with our data inside the field of HIV inside what I call the, the AIDS mafia
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, for some time without all that much uh, small changes but not enough and so I just thought well know, maybe sometimes maybe you have to throw your toys out of the cot a a bit more
2: publicly Um, maybe we really need to to try and
3: um, help the people who are actually paying for all of this which is you the taxpayer um, to understand how much more how much better we could be doing with their money than we are. Could
0: you could you describe what you mean by the AIDS mafia?
3: Um you know, HIV is an industry uh, like um, like any other industry that develops its institutions and its institutional interests. People build careers around it. I'm one of them. Um, you know, and you you develop a whole, uh, in this case, really quite large group of of people and organizations, and that that. Rely for their very existence on uh, money that's available for HIV programming, mm-hmm. um, and so you get into a, a sort of circular. And this is there's nothing special about HIV. This is true, I think, of of every field, commercial or or, or public sector. Um, people get into a field because they care, but then, well, to do what I need to do, we need money and therefore we need to lobby, and that puts us in a trench position, and now another institution that really actually is not interested in sex or drugs, which is what HIV is about, Mm -hmm. thinks, oh, look, HIV, lots of money in that, how do we get some of it? What do we do? Well, we do kids, okay, so now it's about HIV and kids, or what do we do? We do farming, now it's about HIV and Farming, mm-hmm. etc., and more and more institutional interests um, arise, and it's very difficult if you're a person or uh, an institution that that is part of that structure. That structure that I call the AIDS mafia. To say, hey, wait a minute, actually, actually, there's really in the countries in which I work, there's no relationship between farming and HIV. Let's just butt out and let someone else have the money.
0: Mm-hmm. So th- that also uh, leads to a question about how you got into this in the first place. So maybe could you talk a little bit about uh, how you came to work for UNAIDS?
3: Yeah, not much to say, really. Um, I, uh I had a, by the time I did that, I had a master's degree in um, medical demography of all things, mm-hmm. um, which is basically um, birth, death, and sex. Uh, and of those two things, uh, I'm, I'm really, I'm not a breeder and I'm not that interested in birth. Uh-huh. And, and death isn't a fun subject for anyone, but sex, mm. uh, that you can always uh, raise an interest in, at least in me. And so I sort of Started working within that field um, in or taking an interest in studies of sexual behaviour um, and fertility um, motivations and etc. And that was just at the time that UNAIDS was being formed um, and they were starting to review okay what's what's really known about different patterns of sexual behaviour around the world. Um, and so I started, but I got put in touch with people who were looking for some sort of syntheses of what was known and so I put together some reports for them and they're like, oh right, you can write intelligently, it seemed to be the only skill they cared about Um, you know, could you help us do our first annual report and you think, yeah, not only can I write intelligently but I can actually read data and, and, you know, have a fairly good idea of of where it's coming from, what the quality is, so I started in in that way Um, and then when you start doing that, you look at the data and you think, oh my god, is this (laughs) the we have. Mm-hmm. Is this really what we're making decisions on at a global level? Is this really how we're deciding how to how to spend money or even how much money we need or etc. The data was really really crap. Um, and so then I got interested in, in helping to work on you know, ways of improving data systems. Mm-hmm. So maybe it was also UNAIDS at the time. You know UNAIDS is, is a weird beast because. Um, so it sort of, the, the, the international institutions, their response to HIV, uh, was, was first of all in the World Health Organization, the global program on AIDS, I think probably very appropriately. Um, but there were all kinds of political machinations going on there. Um, and, uh, it, the program was headed by, uh, the newly sainted John of the Mann. Um, and, he made a point um that actually this wasn't just about HIV was not just about um health and not just about um, you know, disease and, and sickness and cures and prevention. It was also that had a whole social dimension that went with the stigma of the that is, attaches to the behaviors that spread it and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And so there was this whole human rights agenda that that crept in for for, for extremely legitimate reasons. But once... They started to, to formulate the issue of HIV in those really quite, um, broad terms. And other agencies came along and said, well, wait a minute. If it's about human rights, it's, it's us that do human rights.
2: Mm-hmm. And, you
3: know, the UNDP would say, well, if it's about development, we do development, you know, and then they're saying it's not just about gay men. It's also about women. And then, you know, UNICEF says, oh, well, if it's about women and kids, we do that. And so everyone wanted to sort of have, have a part of the pie to an extent. Um and the well the, the Global Programme on AIDS was dissolved and this new body, UN AIDS, not a UN agency in its own right, but a kind of secretariat theoretically that was just bringing together the hiv interests of all these different parties was formed and it's a bit like you know there's one big bully in the class who has all the toys you take the toys away from him you give you know a little bit of toy to seven other kids and say now go play together nicely in the sandpit
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: You know, the bully still <laughs> still has the upper hand um, and is not pleased about the toys being being taken away. Everyone else is kind of jealous that that you know Susie got a bigger toy than Jack did, uh-huh. etc. And it's really not a happy sandpit. Um, so I think the way that 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 UNAIDS was conceived from the start um, was, it was deeply problematic. Right. Uh, however, I will say that it was also at the start, full of really fun, really smart, really dedicated people who were not UN functionaries, who were not yet maf- you know, part of the mafia, um, and who were really trying to to get things done. So it was you know, a very energizing place to work.
0: Yeah, from the descriptions in the book, it sounds like it was, it was a place full of characters and, and full of energy, and it, it, it points out um, the difference between what, Uh, you were describing now with an industry full of money attracting lots of interest just because it has a lot of money to what it was like then when there wasn't so much money and it was very much, it seems, about um, cultivating interest in, in HIV exact, and AIDS
3: yeah that's exactly right I mean when, when I started uh, we had about 250 million dollars a year um, for HIV in, globally in the whole of the developing world I mean 250 million bucks a year mm-hmm. a, at a time when you already had over 20 million infections
2: you that's know, three times nothing basically um, and so people
3: were trying to do the best that they they could with the money they they had but Acutely aware that we really did need more cash um, to, to to even begin to address um, the problem on on the scale that um, that we already knew uh, was was extant. I guess one of the real problems was that, as in many other spheres of life, I suppose, what you do to get that money can compromise what you are then able to do with the money. Uh And I think that that's what happened to us in the field of HIV. To get the money, we had to essentially re- Package, if not reinvent the truth, Uh Um, because the truth was extremely unpalatable, particularly politically. You don't actually bring in a lot of cash in most countries by saying, hey, listen, HIV, because of the way the virus works, because of short periods of high infectiousness uh, and long periods of very low infectiousness, actually is only spread by an extremely limited number of, of behaviors. Which are concentrated in populations that we can very clearly identify. And those are the following. And those populations include obviously people who shoot up drugs, gay guys, men in prison, uh, people who, of, of all three genders who sell sex, um, and, and those that buy it very regularly. And they also include adults in, uh, in, Societies that have a history both of polygamy and relatively high levels of, of female autonomy, mm-hmm. um, and those societies are principally in Eastern Southern Africa. So to say, hey look, HIV is essentially a disease of hookers, gay guys, junkies, mm-hmm. and 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 Africans um, was something that, for obvious reasons, uh, was extremely difficult to 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 vocalise. Um, and so we sort of repackaged it as a, everyone's at risk, this is everyone's problem. Um, it was, and you, that did bring in the money, but it then makes it impossible to then spend that money on the groups that need it most. Uh-huh.
0: You, you introduced this really interesting term of beating up the data. <laughs>
3: Well, that's a term from my journalistic uh, journalistic uh, days so in, in journalistic terms to beat up a story is basically to make a, a really big deal out of a really small story um, to make it much frothier and, and more important than, than it really is and we did do that a bit with the, I, I will say and I think it's really important to emphasize this at least when I was working in UNA we didn't make up any data. Uh-huh. We were not falsifying numbers at all. Uh-huh. What we were doing was essentially photographing them in their in their worst light, if you want. Uh-huh. Um, we were we were allowing people to make connections that weren't necessarily substantiated by the data. So you'd say, listen. Um,
0: you were raising alarms, uh, in other words, like uh, in the background. I hear one right now. Sorry, yes. no, 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 no. It's fine. It's it's uh, it's a perfect example. <laughs>
3: uh, yeah, that's a uh, London on a uh, sunny afternoon. Right. Um, yeah, what? what uh, essentially, you're saying. Here's what's going on. We've got a problem at the moment in men who have sex with other men, in men who buy sex from sex workers, uh, in in men who uh, inject drugs, because most of the epidemic early on is concentrated among among men. HIV comes with a penis um, Mm -hmm. most of the time. Um, But... And then, of course, but many of those men also have sex with women, uh, and therefore, if they have sex with women and infect those women, then we will have HIV coursing through the general population. Mm -hmm. That was the unstated, or sometimes actually almost stated, um, corollary, so concentrated in these groups now but if we don't prevent it in these groups then it's going to threaten you, your children mm-hmm. or you know, mm-hmm. your maiden art and of course what's not true is that last uh, leap of imagination because unless, yes a guy who who gets infected in sex with a sex worker may well become infected himself. And yes, he may well pass on infection to his wife. But unless his wife has another sex partner within two months, she's actually really extraordinarily unlikely to pass on that infection herself. And most places where Uh, commercial sex is a main mode of transmission, Um, so that would be many countries in Asia, Latin America, Eastern Europe. Most women are not having regular uh, concurrent sexual partnerships. They may have sex with many different people in their lives, but they tend not to do it at the same time, which is what the virus essentially demands because of its very short periods of of very high infectivity. So we were sort of saying once a woman's infected, she's going to go on and infect other guys. And basically, or we were implying that that was the case, and that wasn't actually true.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: So the problem is, then, that you've, you've essentially packaged this as something that threatens innocent women and children. And once you've packaged something as a threat to innocent women and children, the response that's demanded is a response that protects innocent women and children. Mm -hmm. And so we suddenly are doing all these programs for pregnant women and for schoolgirls and this and that. You think, no, no, that's not what we meant. What we meant was the best way to protect innocent women and children is to protect guys from getting infected in the first place in that very small handful of behaviors which exposes them.
0: Very interesting. So in, in the second chapter, you actually move from kind of this high level writing the reports and um, integrating and aggregating all of these data to the front lines, um, to the front lines of HIV AIDS surveillance in Indonesia. Um, can you talk about that transition?
3: Uh-huh. Not an easy one. So I should say that while I was writing these reports in Geneva, I was also writing guidelines on how to do surveillance. Uh-huh. I worked with a very good team on trying to improve surveillance systems, and whatever, and I was very actively involved in developing those guidelines. And it's very easy when you're sitting in Geneva or, or more frequently at some nice five-star resort a bit out of Geneva so that you don't get distracted. Uh-huh. It's very easy to make up these wonderful kind of indicators and questionnaires and, and whatever. One of the problems of working for any international organization is that you have to try and and homogenize things enough so that they're that they can be used by any country Um, so that and and by doing that you essentially make them not relevant to any specific country or any specific situation Mm -hmm. so you take this kind of general cookbook that says take protein cook till done Uh um, you know and then you take it to the field and suddenly you're trying to make you know, oysters Rockefeller with a drizzle of balsamic something, you know, something very specific.
2: Uh uh
3: Um, and and you don't really have the tools. So I took these very general guidelines, in which I was quote, an expert (laughs) to interview the so fraudulent being sent there as if I knew anything. Uh um, and tried to make them work in practice. And of course For the practice, particularly the practice of sex, particularly the practice of the sale and commercial consumption of sex, it's really very different when you're on a back alley along the railroad tracks in Western Jakarta uh, than it is when you're in a five-star resort, you know, on the the shores of some lake outside of Geneva.
2: Right. So... um what was it like
3: <laughs> well it, i mean it was it was really interesting because of course the only people who can put in your face how wrong you are mm-hmm. Are the people with whom you're doing the surveillance. So it's not by talking to other epidemiologists and other public health people that you learn what you should be doing. It's by talking to, you know, the the, the hookers and the junkies and you know, that you're working with. I remember there was one classic example when uh, I was talking to a. Uh, transgender sex worker who's since become quite a good friend, um, Ines. And, and she was, uh, she was around at my house because I was trying to get her cast in some film. A friend of mine was a, a producer and was looking for a transgender, uh, to, to, cast in a film. And I was like, oh, perfect. You can come <laughs> to dinner and I'll introduce you and see. And we got quite late and we were in, you know, what's politely called second bottle territory, except that it was a second bottle of really quite posh, uh, Scotch whiskey, which Ines was knocking back, you know, because for all her, you know, elegant stockings and um, high heels and beautiful eyelashes and perfect manicure, you know, after all, she's still a bloke physically, so she can get through this stuff. She's knocking back. And I was like, God, honey, you have really expensive taste. You could, you're going to bankrupt me with your whiskey consumption. I said, I said, I don't know how you do that with like, how do you support yourself with like three clients a week? And she looks at me as if, you know, I've just arrived from Planet Zog, she's only three clients a week. And I said, well, we've just got the data in from our first survey and, you know, and, and that's the average for, for transgender sex workers in Chicago. In she says, oh, that's because just talking to all the wrong people. Uh-huh. And I was like, no, Innes, we're not. And in the way that you have, you know, when you're completely drunk um, and, and think you're a bit of an expert, you know, I start explaining to Innes, you know, the, the randomized... Uh uh, study design and how we're doing our sample frame and how we do it with probability proportionate to size and all this total nerdy stuff.
2: Uh-huh. Here's
3: what we do. We map. And she's like, ah, oh, you're just talking to wrong people. And I said, Amos, you're not listening to me. We do, we get a random sample. She says, no, you're not listening to me. Any hooker who's on the streets talking to a researcher is a hooker who's not with a client. Right. You're talking to all the dogs. And I was like, Oh, <sighs> My God, she's right. (laughs) Of course. She's right. We're getting a completely biased sample. Right. We're getting a sample of people who are least likely to be with a client because the people who are most likely to be with a client are not on the streets when, you know, when, when we're, or less likely to be on the streets when we're out there recruiting people. Mm -hmm. And so of course we have a downward bias in our, uh, estimate of the number of clients. And you're like, okay. And so it's from experiences like that that you think, okay, you know, that cookbook that I brought with me from Geneva, that's, that, that recipe is not going to work and we have to change it so it was a really interesting experience that really and and, and a learning experience in a bigger sense in life, I mean not, it sounds, it sounds very pompous and portentous but to, to actually remind yourself over and over and over again that research is not something that you can do to people it's only something you can do with people
0: mm-hmm. and and this is this is a, a theme actually that seems to run through the book, and that's you know taking a, a critical eye to um, to all questions that you're asking about individual locations and trying to understand the place itself and how the questions emerge out of the place and are not so much imposed on it.
2: I think
3: that's exactly right, and and it puts us in a bit of a quandary, because um, you know if you say basically everything is context specific, then there's no point in a way trying to do any research from which you can you can learn generalizable lessons.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Um, And there are there, I think that that in in general, um, in epidemiological research, and this is not confined just to to HIV, but to many fields. Uh, essentially good epi research can tell you what works but not how to make it work Mm -hmm. so uh, for example we know that increasing condom use in commercial sex will reduce new infections but how to make that happen is is very different in different contexts and different situations mm-hmm. um and and i think that if we allow ourselves to go i um, I, I believe fundamentally that you have to take local contexts uh into uh into account both when you're you're uh, researching a, a situation and when you're planning a response but if you allow yourself to go too that far down that route you get to the stage where you say well I don't have data for this city I've got I've got data for 21 cities across Indonesia but not my city mm-hmm. so so none of this is relevant to me and it becomes an excuse not to do anything the no data equals no problem sort of equation mm-hmm. so we have to be a bit careful about uh, the level of, of local specificity that you need, um, and
0: in a, in a particular context. Now, I, I, I love the, the story about Inez, and, and the book is filled with um, remarkable characters like her. Uh, and And one of the things that comes through um, so strikingly is that even though epidemiology ends up representing individuals as numbers, this is very much a, about humans. And I think one of the most moving parts of the book was actually your description of um, how the first results about uh, or from a survey on syphilis and HIV among transgender sex workers um, actually led you to cry.
3: Yeah, it sounds very really pathetic, doesn't it? But
0: no, it sounds very human.
3: Well, you just you kind of, I mean, we've done our calculations. You're right. You do everything in numbers. And, and so, but one of the things you have to do when you're planning a, a survey, obviously, is to make a sample size calculation, and you make your sample size calculation based on your uh, sort of worst estimate, in a way, of, of, of what the... Uh, Actual prevalence of, of the condition that you're looking at in the population may be, um, and and we had we kicked around the last data that we had was three percent HIV infection among transgender sex workers in Jakarta, and we kicked those numbers around. I said, you know, I mean, worst case scenario that was several years ago. Worst case scenario where, yeah, just imagine ten percent, and people are like, oh, they're ridiculous. I was like, yeah, well, let's just do that because you know it's it's, it's safe. It gives us a margin of error, and then. And the lab had very kindly color-coded the, the sheets for me. And so they basically, so the positives were in, in green. And sorry, the, the positives were in red and the negatives were in green, which gives you a real kind of at-a-glance. They just hand you a sheet of paper and you can see right away, you know, how much how much red there is and obviously you want it to be all green and they handed me this sheet that just had like so much red on it and i looked at it and i was just stunned and i said to her oh my god and and, and can i see the hiv sheet too because i thought i was looking at syphilis i thought i was looking at something curable
2: mm-hmm.
3: And she says, that is the HIV cheat. Mm -hmm. And I was just devastated, you were like, oh my god, I've spent the last three months of my life. You know, doing field work is, is is hard work and you spend a lot of time waiting around and you spend a lot of time chit-chatting and you spend a lot of time schmoozing and you spend a lot of time having your toenails painted. Mm-hmm. A lot of transgender sex workers also have salons, you know, I've had my hair cut like 17 times mm-hmm. you while know? um, well, you're sort of waiting around and this and that. And you chat to people and you get to know their life stories and this and like that and then I'm just handed this sheet of paper that's a quarter red, and yeah, you, you, yeah, you, you it's, it's not a happy moment. Um, the, the, on the, the, the less happy moment was so the reason that we planned this study in the first place actually was because, um, a, uh, transgender sex worker, um, Lenny, who's a very, uh, she, she's a restaurant manager by trade and she's very kind of organized and whatever. And, and she was kind of upset about what was going on in, in the community and knew that there were high rates of sexually transmitted infections and whatever. And she'd come to, to the, I was working with an NGO in collaboration with the, um, Indonesian Ministry of Health and she came to us for funding for uh, what we call an IEC campaign one of those awful uh, HIV or public health acronyms which is information education and communication so basically she wants to hand out leaflets telling people how how not to get HIV and I said to her when she came in with this proposal well what do we know about behavior and what do we know about levels of HIV what do we know about levels of behavior and she said well you know not much last survey was six years ago Mm -hmm. so I said well why don't we find out that first, and then we'll plan your IE, We'll be able to plan your IEC campaign better, right? So that's how we started collaborating on this survey. So when I got that piece of, of red paper and and the syphilis, of course, you know, I mean, it was the the HIV was at, at uh, a quarter, and the syphilis was at nearly two thirds. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's a lot of penicillin that you've got to plan for something. So I, I just, I was absolutely gobsmacked. And having had a little bit of a weep in the in the ladies' room, um, I then got on my motorbike and went straight to Lenny's place and said um, <laughs> bad news and and showed her the results. And she was very quiet. Quiet. And then she looked at me and said, "Well, we don't need an education campaign, do we? We need a care ca- We need care services." Uh huh. And I was like, "Right on, girlfriend. You know that's you know it's a com- we need a completely different response to the one that we were." we were planning. um, Because when you plan things in the absence of data, you've no idea what you need, even when you're part of the community.
0: Uh And so it seems like um, doing the groundwork, doing the investigative work, uh, what's going on in the sex community helped to upend expectations about who was at risk and then how much HIV and AIDS was around, and it seemed like a, a similar, um, uh, similar kind of process happened in the in the community of drug users.
3: Yeah. Um I mean exactly it was the same, oh look, we're going to do education, and you know all the, we, we've got a pretty good idea that a lot of people are getting infected, and so you come with this public health nerd's attitude, which when you when you live and breathe public health and particularly when you live and breathe. A single disease, as most people in public health do, you know, I'm a TB person, I'm an HIV person, I'm mm-hmm. a diarrheal diseases person, whatever it is. You, you know, we all have our little bubbles, and inside your bubble, what you are working on is the most important thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Right? It always is. You're always the center of the universe. So, of course, HIV is the most important thing in the world. And everyone must really, and particularly everyone who's in some kind of high-risk category, must spend their whole time thinking about how to prevent HIV. And if they don't, well, it's because they don't know. So if we just tell people how to avoid HIV, then they'll think, oh, right, HIV is something I want to avoid, and therefore I'll change my behavior to avoid it. And that's kind of, you know, the, the health belief model essentially underpins most of public health programming but it also completely ignores the realities of human life
2: mm-hmm. um,
3: because most of us actually don't i mean i smoke cigarettes for christ's sake
2: mm-hmm. you
3: know do, do i do i think that smoking increases my risk of lung cancer absolutely i do do i do it anyway because it's a lot of fun yes
2: mm-hmm. um, and and this is true of of many things and so our, our first assumption when we saw a lot of infection in, in drug users was, oh
3: God, you know, they don't even know anything and they're sharing needles and if we just give them the information, they'll stop doing it and this and that. And then when we first did, we did the first, again, I insisted on, on doing research before we planned programs. Um, and what do we find? Knowledge is 100%. 100% of, I don't know what it was, I think the first sample size was 600 growth injectors knew that sharing needles spread HIV Uh and we've read the books I can't make you guess but uh, you know if you were to guess with 100% knowing that this spreads HIV oh and by the way uh, you also have 98% who uh, would rather avoid HIV and you have almost 70% who can always who know where to get a clean needle and can afford it
2: you Mm -hmm. think oh
3: well right Um, what percentage of sharing needles 98%
2: Mm
3: -hmm. it's like wait how does that stack up you know everyone knows how to avoid it Everyone knows that by sharing needles, they're exposing themselves to HIV. People don't want to get HIV. They know where to get clean needles. They're sharing needles anyway. Um, So the data don't fit with our model, right? And, you know, obviously what's wrong is not the... Uh, obviously, if you what's wrong is not our model because we're in public health, we know our model's right, right? So what must be wrong is the data. Well, no, what's wrong is our assumption that the most important thing in people's lives is the fear of HIV and avoiding HIV. And what happened when we did a little bit more qualitative work around that was that we found that, in fact, people do know where to get clean needles and they have easy access to clean needles, but they don't want to take a needle out of the house with them because if they're found on the street by the cops, the cops know who who the junkies are, Mm -hmm. um, but they can use a, a needle as proof of illegal behavior and then they can arrest you. And most of the cops are not trying to put people in jail. Most of the the cops are trying to get bribes. Um, But obviously, to make the bribery process effective, if someone can't or won't give you a bribe, you put them in jail. So people are much more scared of getting arrested than they are of getting HIV. Mm -hmm. Because an arrest is a real inconvenience tomorrow, and HIV is a notional inconvenience
2: 10 years from now.
0: So there's so it's like there was a then this shift to having a better understanding of um, why people behave in a particular way. And then one of the other interesting parts of the book is uh, or has to do with once you know that, you can design your interventions, but even. Being able to implement those interventions is often fraught with difficulty because of all sorts of other um, influences, like you were saying at the beginning. Um, where you, Once you start to get the money, the people who give the money often... Um, have sway in how the money is spent, and it seemed like that had that was uh, important both in the realm of commercial ses- sex work with um, the availability availability and use of condoms, and also in the world of IV drug use with um, uh, needle programs.
3: That's exactly right. I mean, the, the obviously, if you've identified the problem, the problem is not lack of needles. The problem is that people can't carry needles um, and can't use them in, and don't have access to them at the point where they're injecting drugs. Mm-hmm. So the solution is not actually, in that particular case, the solution is not necessarily a needle exchange because you're still going to have the problem of people not wanting to carry needles with them because of fear of arrest. So the pro- it changes what your intervention is into a political intervention, which is what we have to do is work with the police and the justice system so that people don't get arrested for carrying needles. Right? It changes the whole nature of the response and when when the problem is a political one the solution is generally going to be a political one but we have this further problem that when the problem is a political one in a donor country you can't find a political solution in the country of the implementing or where the program needs to be implemented Mm -hmm. so I didn't state that very clearly but what I mean by it is this Uh, the United States of America for example has been extraordinarily uh, antipathetic has been extraordinarily unkeen on funding uh, needle and syringe programs, and mm-hmm. that's been true since the late 1980s. So at a time when countries like the UK already had universal uh, access to clean needles through a publicly funded program that was instituted by uh, that great liberal uh, prime minister of ours, Margaret Thatcher, uh-huh. <laughs> um, the United States was saying... We can't do that because giving people needles encourages drug use. Um, and, of course, what it encourages is people to share needles and, and you had to, you know, rates of uh, over 40% infection in in drug injectors in New York City, for example. But that antipathy that the United States has domestically to funding needle exchange programs, they then export through their uh, HIV funding programs for other countries. And you can argue that that's a reasonable thing to do. You know, if, if, if the taxpayers of, of some country don't wish to support a particular intervention, then there's no reason that they should. But the problem is that they're actually creating really, a, a, it's almost like diversionary tactics. So they're giving us money to do programs for drug injectors, but saying we can't do the one thing that we know is effective with drug injectors. Mm-hmm in a country like Indonesia or in a country like China or in a country like, you know, so what we need to be able to do is lobby politically for support for needle and syringe programs in Indonesia and then provide those things. And we're not only allowed to do either of those things with U.S. money. Right. The Indonesian government isn't going to put any money into HIV prevention because we've got all this money from the U.S. to do HIV prevention, so the Indonesian government government's using its own money for other, other priorities. And frankly, it's no more politically popular there than it is in the States to say, oh, I'm just taking your tax money and spending it doing nice things for junkies. Uh, So we're in this bind, even if the country in question wants to use the the money for uh, a priority uh, that they consider to be important. If the donor Government doesn't wish to see the money used that way, it won't get used that way.
2: Mm-hmm. So it's
3: one of the distortions that's really, uh, introduced, uh, into the system by, uh, by the whole kind of global aid and dependency model. And interestingly, the countries that have had by far the most effective responses to HIV also, have the highest proportions of domestic funding for their programs. And huh. I guess Thailand and Brazil would be two very good examples of that.
0: That's very interesting.
3: Yeah, Brazil actually turned down $40 million from the United States because it refused to, um, the Brazilian government refused to comply with uh, one of the stipulations of, of or one of the conditions of. Um, U.S. government funding for HIV programs, which is to uh, say that to refuse to support the concept of uh, commercial sex as a legitimate uh, occupation.
0: It's fascinating. Uh, it's it's and it's and infuriating, um, at the same time. Uh, uh the other the other thing that infuriates me, which is a small thing, but just drives me
3: absolutely bonkers is some of the uh, structural um, conditions that we impose such as, so in, in the States, I, mean, I don't mean to, to harp on um, on U.S. funding because many other donors have similar policies, but it happens that the U.S. taxpayer is extraordinarily generous, actually, in the, in the field of, uh, of international public health and, and particularly HIV programming. And you know, because there's so much U.S. money around, it sort of finds itself in the firing line quite a lot. ironically. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the things that that all U.S. um, uh, overseas uh, aid is subject to is the Buy American Act. And so you find yourself in this absurd position where you're in a country that's a huge producer of latex and one of the largest producers of condoms in the world, Uh wanting to provide those condoms to hookers who are, you know, working within half a mile of the condom factory. And you have to buy your condoms from a manufacturer in Tennessee that makes them uh, approximately four times the price and pay to ship them. I was like, I actually sat down at, on one, you know, long plane journey out of extreme boredom and figured out the carbon footprint of a condom that I was giving out to hookers in Jakarta. So if you take the latex, you ship it to Tennessee to make it into a condom and ship it back, you know, your condoms have carbon footprints of about 10,000 miles each.
0: It's It's amazing. And and there are um, these revelations and and, uh, um, observations throughout the book. And it's really one of the things that makes it such a pleasure to read is how eye-opening it is. Um, And, Elizabeth, I feel like we've taken up a lot of your time, so I'd like to ask um, your question about a question about um, what's next what what are you gonna what are you working on now what's your next project
3: um, I've been working a lot on because of the sort of ongoing frustration with the fact that we we generate a lot more data than we actually use or, or use well um, I've been working um, on an initiative uh, that is trying to get um, uh, many of the major funders of uh, public health research in developing countries, also in the developed world together, to agree um, that any data that are generated by research projects that they fund uh, will be put into the shared scientific domain so that everyone can look at one another's data, combine it, mash it together, um, do new analyses, bring new ideas and fresh eyes to it, so that hopefully for the same amount of, of data collection, we get more information and more new ideas. It's kind of the open source software um, concept brought to public health data.
2: Mm -hmm. Because,
3: you know, as you said earlier, you know, epidemiology, it's all about numbers and, and data, yeah, it's all about numbers too, but every data set... You know, I've got data from 17,000 sex workers. That's 17,000 people who've allowed me to poke and prod them, and who have pissed into cups, and who've, you know, generously given me 40 minutes of their life that they will never live again mm-hmm. to answer fairly intrusive questions about, you know, about insertive and receptive anal sex or whatever it is, um, and then for those data to be locked up on on my computer. Um, for only my benefit and, and those who happen to read the one or two papers that I actually get around to publishing um, is is nothing short of criminal, I think.
0: Well, that, that sounds like uh, a hugely important project um, and uh, one that I'm eager to see put into practice. Um, so thank you so much for um, doing the interview today uh, I had a great time speaking with you and thank you again well,
3: It was a great pleasure, next time we'll do it in second bottle
0: territory <laughs> Excellent You've been listening to an interview with Elizabeth Pisani about her book, The Wisdom of Horrors Bureaucrats, Brothels and The Business of AIDS here on New Books in Medicine I'm your host, Jonathan Grad Have a great week